probably 15 years, we have been supporting a mission in Haiti. For the first few years, it was called Heart for Home Ministries, but then uh, they joined with an organization called Lifeline Ministries. And we actually had a mission team go there for two weeks back in 2017. And I've spoken to other people that have been on mission trips down there. And I recently found out something interesting in regards to the Haitians' relationship with the sea. Because they're surrounded by water, surrounded by beaches. But he said that they've been taught to stay out of the ocean almost altogether. He said it's rare to see Haitians swimming in the sea or playing in the surf. Many of them don't even know how to swim. And you've heard me mention before how I, I'm from PEI, and fishing is one, actually the third largest way of making money on the island. And these fishermen that spend their whole lives out on the ocean, they don't know how to swim. So it's the same way here with the Haitians. And the guy said that generations ago, the Haitians were taught to stay away from the ocean. The ocean's too big, it's too angry, it's too powerful. So they decided that they would just stay away from it altogether. Now, a healthy fear of the ocean is a good thing, but it's also a place where we can go to for, to rest, to relax, to find some peace and refreshment. But they've been taught to just stay away from it altogether and to fear it. Now, I think this is how many have learned to approach God, that he's big and that he, he seems to be angry. He's powerful. And the best approach to God is just stay away from him. And many people run from God. They stay away from him because they were taught early on that if they get too close, then they're going to be in trouble. So many of us come with some presuppositions, some ideas about who God is that have caused us to be on the run from him. Some people have been taught that God is indifferent. He just winds up the world like you would an old-fashioned alarm clock and then just leaves it to run on its own. He doesn't really care about what's going on in your life. But that's so wrong. But as a result of being taught that, you've not gone to him, you've stayed away from him, you've tried to carry your own burdens and weights. But the Bible says that he loves you and he wants everyone to come to him and to throw their burdens on him. And I know many of you have been taught that God is like an angry judge and he's just watching and he's waiting for you to mess up so that he can smack you on the head. And he has all kinds of rules for you to follow. And there's just no way that you can meet all those expectations. He's just going to be angry, and he's going to be disappointing, and he's going to be condemning. So if that's the way you see God, then you'll stay away from him. And I know many have been taught to think of God as a harsh boss, as someone that you can't please no matter what you do. He's just going to be disappointed and in what you've done in your life. And many have been taught that God is a merciless dictator, that he's out to get them. So it's best to stay away from the sea altogether. It's big, it's angry, it's too powerful. And that's how we've learned to approach God. So when someone comes up to that individual to start to talk about God, about Jesus, they've learned to just back away altogether 
because we don't want to get too close. Now, the way we're taught to deal with things that we're afraid of is to just run away. My oldest daughter, Brittany, when she was a preschooler, we didn't want her watching any of those violent cartoons that would be on TV. So she was pretty well trained. Then one day she was next door with some of the neighbor's kids, and they started watching some of those cartoons. And she comes running out of the house. Violence, violence! And she ran away from it. And that's the way we are. We will run away. We're going to find in the book of Jonah that God is a compassionate and merciful God when we approach him with a healthy fear and a spirit of humility, that we actually get to enjoy his presence. And when we humble ourselves before him, we get to experience peace and life. So you'll remember when we began the book of Jonah two weeks ago, in Jonah 1.1, it said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we studied that God said to Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah had no interest whatsoever in going there. This wasn't a place that he wanted to visit. He wanted to stay in Israel, where it was peaceful, where it was wonderful being a prophet of God. But God says, nope, you're going to Nineveh. And Nineveh could actually be nicknamed the city of blood. And, and these people were actually proud of that. Our license plates here in Nova Scotia say Canada's Ocean's Playground. And Nineveh's would say the city of blood. But they liked being known as a vicious and violent city. And this is where God tells Jonah to go. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. And he runs away. So in week one, I talked about the fact that he decided that he was going to go about as far as he could. And he was headed to a city called Tarshish, which was 3,200 kilometers in the opposite direction. He tries to run away from God, but then he realizes, well, that's kind of a difficult thing to do because he's trying to run away on the ocean. And God is the one who made the ocean in the first place. So it's just a story of futility. It's not a good plan. But David wrote about this in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go to get away from your spirit? Where can I run from you? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I lie down in the grave, you are there. So God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at the same time. And that's what David is writing about here. So Jonah discovers the futility of spending a life running from God. So God sends a storm. And Jonah's thrown overboard, as we saw last week. And then God especially provides this great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's its assignment. Swallow Jonah, and Jonah would spend the weekend inside that fish, where he, surprise, repents. And inside the fish, he says, okay, God, I was wrong. You've got my attention. And he repents of his disobedience. And chapter 2 in Jonah ends this way. James read this verse at the end of his message last week. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So he repents, and then God causes the fish to throw him up onto the beach, basically. 
And I'm sure Jonah's left there thinking, how did this happen? How did my life come to this? And I want to tell you that it may be three days, it may be three years, it may be 30 years, but when you run away from God, he will ultimately find you and vomit you up. That's what he will do. You find yourself in a position, you don't know how you got there, and you realize that your way isn't working. So I asked people to answer, or actually finish this sentence. I stopped running from God when? And I had answers like, I realized he wasn't going to stop chasing me. Someone else said, when it became clear that I had made a mess of things. Another guy said, I hit rock bottom. And then one fellow said, she, when she filed for divorce. And then one person said, I heard myself say the words, I'm an alcoholic. And then another one said, I woke up in the hospital after an overdose. Or when I was in the back of a police car. And then one person said, when I realized I had nowhere else to go. So it just isn't working. You've tried it. You've taken one path and another path and another path. And it isn't working. And every path just seems to be the same. And it leads to discouragement, to disappointment and frustration. And you think, is this what life really is? It's not working. There's nowhere else to go. And then we finally stop running from God. So Jonah finally realizes the futility of trying to run away from God. And chapter 3 actually begins the same way that chapter 1 began. Because we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And there's something else. Isn't that familiar? But then we read a second time. So I wonder if Jonah had been thinking when he got vomited up on the land, glad this whole episode is behind me. I'm so glad that I've had this experience. I'm going to be a better prophet. I'm going to be a better preacher because of it. But I'm ready to now put this behind me, God, and I'll just go back to Israel where everything will be nice and easy and I will preach there and be a prophet. I've learned my lesson. But look at verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So God says, no, you're actually going to go to Nineveh. And Jonah was probably hoping to get vomited up on the shore of Israel. But he is told by God a second time, you are going to Nineveh. See, when we're listening for God to speak, we expect that his word is going to be stop. We always think it's going to be stop doing this or, or stop doing that. But actually, the word that God uses, his primary message to us, isn't the word stop, but it's the word go. So God gives us an assignment. So here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to go is what he is saying. So God speaks to Jonah a second time. Now, have you ever been late paying a bill or maybe forgotten to pay it and they send you a second notice? The first notice is pretty nice. They say, oh, you owe us $233 for your electrical services. But then the second notice, you usually get in big, bold print at the top, second notice. They want you to be aware of the fact that you haven't yet paid them. And one time, I paid my electrical bill and then I got a second notice, and I just 
kind of ignored that. I, I said, that must be a mistake. They sent it out before I paid the bill. And, but then I got final notice. Your services will be cut off if you do not pay this bill. So I went to my online banking, and I had paid my water bill instead of my phone bill. So that can happen to us. But here is God. He's kind of giving Jonah a second notice. You're going to Nineveh. And now here's the question for us. When God says go, do you make a move? God will oftentimes call us to go somewhere that we're not comfortable going. Your Nineveh may be to a family member that you've stopped praying for because you just think it's hopeless. They're never going to come to know Christ. Or it might be the co-worker that laughs at you for coming to church like you are here this morning. Or it might be that neighbor that's always reporting you because your property just isn't up to his standards. And God says, I want you to go across the street or I want you to kneel at the bed of your child tonight and pray with them or I want you to make things right with your spouse. When God says go, do you move? And sometimes the commands are simple, but our pride just keeps us from being obedient. So in Jonah 3, verse 3, we see what Jonah does. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So he obeys God. He has repented while inside that fish. But the real test of his repentance is, will he then follow the instructions and go to Nineveh when he gets out of that fish? And so he did. He heads to Nineveh. And then Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. So this is a city, uh, the historians say, of about 120,000 people. So that's a really big city in this time. And it would have been spread out. There were no high-rises back then. So it took uh, three days to walk across the city. And then in verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. So he's about one-third of the way into the city, and he's been looking at the sinfulness, and he's been looking at the evil. So he stops, and he preaches the shortest sermon in history. It's eight words long. He says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, by way of comparison, this sermon here today will be somewhere between 3,500 and 3,700 words, if you're lucky and I don't get off track and start telling extra stories. But this one is eight words long. And I think of back to university when I was taught homiletics, how to prepare a sermon. But there's more that he could have done. He could have had some type of story or allegory to begin his message. Then he could have used some scripture in there. And then he could have had some personal applications which would enable him to build rapport with his audience. But he just said, one month and you guys, it's lights out for you. That's basically what he was saying. So you get the feeling that he wants to take a front row seat and see this destruction as it's taking place. But the word overthrown that's used here is actually the same word that was used in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. So this isn't an accident. And then what we read next 
is in some way shocking because of the response of these proud and rebellious people. But they actually, in verse 5, we see the first thing that they did. The Ninevites believed God. So they believed God. Now, if you have your Bible here with you this morning, please underline that phrase, because this is what will ultimately define our lives and our relationship with God. Do you believe God? That is the question. Because if you believe that, then if you believe what he says about certain areas of your life, then you're going to change, and you're going to do some things differently. Do you believe God? I can speak to people that want to give their lives to Christ, and I can ask them a few extra questions. I can say, do you believe what God says about money? Do you believe what God says about sex? Do you believe what God says about relationships and about marriage? And you either do believe or you don't. And if you do believe what God says, then you repent and you surrender your life to him and you do things differently. But if you don't believe what God says, then I say to the person, let's step back and kind of look at this decision that you're wanting to make. Because the question is, do you believe what God says? And these people in Nineveh believe him. They believe this eight-word sermon. And in thinking this through, one of the reasons why they may have believed God and believed Jonah is that Jonah is walking evidence of what God can do and the fact that he isn't to be taken lightly. I don't know what someone would look like after they spent three days in the belly of a fish, but I'm sure that his skin must have been kind of bleached a little bit as well as his hair. And I can just imagine the people in the town saying, have you gone to hear that preacher? Yeah, the one who smells so bad. Have you gone to hear his sermon? It's really short, but wow, is it ever compelling. There's just something about him. So maybe God was using what Jonah had been through, using his testimony of rebellion and repentance to perhaps show the people that God isn't to be taken lightly. So there was a time of repentance. The second half of verse 5, a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now sackcloth is an abrasive covering, which back in that day was made out of goat hair. So this was a horribly uncomfortable thing to be wearing. And actually, it would be worn if they were in a time of mourning. It, It would also be used when they were actually maybe grieving, or it could also be a way to show humility and repentance, but it would be actually worn in public to show all of those things. But the, the more rich people, more respectable people, they would never wear sackcloth. Yet here's what we see. From the greatest one to the least one in this city, they are all wearing sackcloth. They are all showing this display of humility and repenting. And the Bible says it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we must have a healthy fear of the sea And we need to have a healthy fear of God. We live in a culture that is oftentimes dishonoring toward God. A culture that takes God's name in vain. A culture that 
talks about the things of God in such a trite way. So there's something wrong about us when we don't have a healthy fear of God. Psychologists will say that some people have a problem with their fear mechanism and that it doesn't work quite right. And that's a problem. If you lean over the edge of the Grand Canyon and there's no fear whatsoever, that's not good. If you were in Western Canada and you come face to face with a grizzly bear and you feel no apprehension whatsoever, that's, that's not good. So the fear mechanism should be kicking in. So the people of Nineveh seem to understand that God isn't someone to be taken lightly. This isn't something that you mess around with. You don't mock his commands. You don't ignore his warnings. If he speaks to you, then it's best that you listen. So they go to dramatic lengths to demonstrate their repentance and humility. And we're picking up in verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now this man has a reputation as a brutal dictator. This is the city of blood, and he's the one that rules it. And he takes off his royal robes, and he puts on sackcloth. And then he issues a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So his decree is that every man, woman, child, and animal should actually be doing this. This is hardcore repentance. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, how do you put sackcloth on animals? But then I think of all the people that walk their dogs by the church or by the house, and they've got all kinds of things on their dogs to keep them warm. So it, it could be done. So there's this repentance, and it's not followed by excuses and justifications. They just repent. But sometimes when we repent, there's some ifs there or, or there's some reasons given as to why we did what we did. We'll say, God, I'm sorry, but you know the world that we live in. This is everywhere. I, I couldn't avoid it myself. Or God, I'm sorry I changed the numbers, but you know my boss has these unrealistic expectations. Or God, I'm sorry for losing my temper, but look at my father. You know where I got it from. How do you expect me to be any different? God, I'm sorry for being disrespectful to my husband, but he's so passive. God, I'm sorry, but... And, and we kind of let ourselves off the hook. And instead of pointing the finger at ourselves, we're pointing at someone else as the reason for what we're doing. But there's none of that here in Nineveh. They're pointing the finger at themselves. And there's a spirit of humility and a spirit of brokenness. So they believed. They repented. And lastly, we see that they changed their ways. So they stopped doing the things the way they had been doing them. So I, I want to read verse 8 again. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and, and their violence. So they didn't just believe 
And they didn't just repent, but they actually changed the way that they were living their lives. Now there's a fascinating passage in Isaiah chapter 58, where God has not yet responded to his people. And his people are fasting, they are wearing sackcloth, and they're praying and doing the whole thing, and God doesn't listen to them. He hasn't responded to them. And they get frustrated with God. And in the third verse, they basically say, God, why didn't you notice how diligently we fasted before you? We're wearing sackcloth, and this isn't comfortable. Could you please respond? And God doesn't respond, but then eventually he does answer them. And, and it's interesting what he says. So we're in verse 6. I will tell you the kind of fast I want. Free the people you have put in prison unfairly and undo their chains. Free those to whom you are unfair and stop their hard labor. Share your food with the hungry and bring food, excuse me, bring poor homeless people into your own homes. When you see someone who has no clothes, give him yours and don't refuse to help your own relatives. Then your light will shine like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your God will walk before you and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call out and the Lord will answer. You will cry out and he will say, here I am. So God says, look, the fasting and the sackcloth, that's all great. But you've got hungry people living among you, and you're not doing anything about it. So feed some hungry people, and then let's talk. Or do you think God is impressed with our worship here on Sunday mornings? Maybe we're here, and we know of someone in need, and we can do something about it, and we refuse to. Or do you think God appreciates our words of worship if we already have a certain sin scheduled on the calendar and we know when we're going to do it, we know what we're going to do. So do those words mean anything to him if that's how you're living? And so the people, they repent. And they don't just repent, but they also make some changes. So in verse 10, our last verse, God responds. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God had compassion on them. The Bible says that God has compassion on his children like a father. And the Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted, that he wants us to be humble and to be repentant. And when we do that, God will not reject us. He won't refuse us. He won't despise us. But his arms are wide open and he wants to accept us. So we may expect to feel the back of his hand, but we find ourselves in his warm embrace.